Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Reverend Dr. Timothy Ahrens with us to discuss Christian nationalism. Welcome, Reverend Ahrens. It's good to be here. Thanks. Jack, uh, it was an uh, emotional weekend for me with regard to um, football. Uh, as you know, Ohio State uh, lost to the team up north, and I am a big Ohio State fan. Mm. And um, on Sunday, though, my Browns won. So uh, up and down. Now, graduated from Notre Dame. I assume you're a Notre Dame fan. I am, and Notre Dame lost as well. Notre Dame lost as well. Those kids just aren't going to the grotto as much as they used to when I was a kid. <laughs> I was telling my wife about Touchdown Jesus. I said, you know, if you've seen Jesus with his hands up, uh, you know, praying, I said, there, there's the uh, Touchdown Jesus at right. Notre Dame. So. Right. But when I think about uh, my love of Ohio State football, it uh, occurs to me how much I hate the other teams. Have you ever heard the joke, my favorite teams are Ohio State and whoever's playing Michigan? Right. But that hatred for the other teams reminds me of nationalism in, in the definition of it, which would be we're superior. Ohio State isn't just my team, and I love them, but Ohio State is superior to all other teams. Not only that, I don't like any of the other teams, Alabama, right, USC. Um, but then when you think about the Browns, I just love the Browns. I'm more of a patriotic person for the Browns because we know they're not the best. And if they're playing a good team, I can enjoy the game and enjoy that the other team is superior or maybe equal. There's not that visceral hate. To me, that's an analogy for nationalism and patriotism. What do you think? You know, I like that because nationalism, I think by definition, conjures the image not just of liking your country, but taking a very caustic and a very caustic and I guess hateful view of anybody else and anybody who might be a threat and anybody who is just even different. So I, I, I think I'm with you on this. I think another analogy we could think to is the, um, the uh, football slash soccer match, whichever one you want to refer to it as, uh, between the United States and Iran. There is a lot of controversy outside of that sport. Oh. Um, a lot of animosity between the, the, the countries politically. Um, but the people I know, which are very few from Iran, are wonderful, wonderful people sure with the same are. values we have and um, the same concerns. Um, and so it's just uh, a little disheartening that we have this nationalism instead of patriotism sometimes. And so that leads us to our guest today, uh, Reverend Aarons. Maybe you could start by telling us what is Christian nationalism? So it's nationalism with Christian put in front of it. I mean, it's uh, so it's it's almost worse, if you will, than nationalism alone. And and I, I, well, it is worse actually. 
Uh, and here's why. Uh, because what you do is you put, you lay over a nationalistic perspective with the name of Jesus, which has no place tied to nationalism. There's nothing in the Gospels uh, that speaks to um, a Jesus who sets himself apart against another, right? Uh, against a nation, certainly. And uh, if you will, my religion's better than your religion kind of attitude. And not only that, but in my understanding, you're going to hell because of your religion, right? And, and that's just not Jesus, right? That's not Christianity. Um, you know, I, I've, often, I've often said people who want to attack Christianity have every right to, you know, because uh, we've been around for 2,000 years, and uh, there have been things that have happened in our name over 2,000 years which are hateful, despicable, uh, awful in every way. But they don't have anything to do with the founder of the faith. Every time we step outside, and nationalism is one of those classic places of stepping outside the founder's beliefs, um, we go offline, right? Um, and by the way, that's, that didn't start somewhere after Jesus died and, as we believe, rose again. It didn't start there. He was always wrestling with his disciples, trying to help them understand that they didn't understand, right? I mean, he, he was always in, in this sort of back and forth with them. You guys just don't get it, right? So I think there is, uh, the, the other thing, I, I wanna talk a little bit about Christian patriots. And I think there's, there, you know, when you, you, to set that up, patriotism and nationalism, let's look at Christian patriots. Um, I belong to, um, a church, I belong to a faith that has some of the greatest patriots I've ever known. Um, and they have stepped out and uh, done what they do in defense of our nation, in protection of our nation, um, in love of our nation, and they do it in the spirit of Jesus, actually. Uh, some of it may take them into places where they're defending with weapons, and some of it may take them into the places where they're defending with, um, with only prayers, right? And, and only um, their nonviolent approach to all that is wrong. Uh, and so I think we have a lot of patriots in our faith tradition, uh, and I know them by name, right? Uh, in terms of, of Christian nationalists, I don't even think of them as patriots. That's the problem is I, they're not patriots. They're not Christians. So, you know, I have a real difficult time, you know, pursuing this in any way because they're not either. They're not a follower of Jesus as he would uh, want us to be, and they're not in love with their nation. They're in love with the idea of a nation state, which, by the way, um, is, the, is the foundation of um, national socialism uh, or the Nazi movement, right? Um, you you worship the Fuhrer as God, right? Uh, and by the way, if you speak the Lord's Prayer in German, the opening words are the Fuhrer, right? The leader. The, the leader, right? right. The, the Father, right? 
And so when you say the Lord's Prayer in German, Führer is in there. So the Germans post-World War II actually have changed the Lord's Prayer so that the word Führer doesn't come back up again. Well, right? you're, you're hitting, so, but that's a nationalist uh, approach. So anyway, yeah. What you're hitting on, because we're talking around it, but right. we really need to define it. When we talk about Christian nationalism, we are talking about the creation of a state that is very homogenous, Right. And supposedly, I say the word supposedly, Christian and Christian only. Am I right so far? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But of course, it gets perverted because why do we want everybody to be the same? And second right. of all, what they're calling Christian, I have a sense, is not what you think is Christian. <laughs> absolutely not. And, and I think, I, let, let's be... Let's talk about one person in this, what I would call the Christian nationalist movement, Michael Flynn. Um, Michael Flynn grew up in a Catholic family, uh, a very uh, religious family. Um, they were practicing all the, they were practicing Catholics. They were always in church. They were always in worship. Um, his mother was a very conservative Catholic who aligned with political, conservative political movements coming out of Catholicism, and she brought her son along on that. Um, and so in some ways, when I think of Michael Flynn, who I think of as truly one of the leaders of the Christian nationalist movement today, uh, I think of somebody whose seeds were in the faith, you know, whose growing up was in the faith, um, a faith that might be expressed and experienced different than mine, but he's taken it to a new level uh, where he separates himself out. And again, um, much of it has to do with language and actions of violence um, against those who don't agree with you. And again, um, you know, years, years ago, <laughs> this is really funny, uh, years ago um, when Blackwell was running for governor, he held a press conference, and uh, he held this press conference with pastors and said, um, I am going to become governor of Ohio so that we can make Ohio a Christian state, right? He was surrounded by these pastors. So I'm laughing because here we are at WOSU. I get a call from Bill Cohen. <clears throat> I'm driving down 315 and he asked me for a comment. I literally pulled over on 315 because I was so upset and I said, he can't be governor of Ohio because Ohio needs to be governed by somebody who cares about every Ohioan and doesn't care about his version of one faith. I like what you've said. I want to go back to a word yeah. you used with Michael Flynn. You referred to him as being raised in a religious family. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I don't look at the word religious in a good way. To me, that speaks of ideology, rigidity, and almost um, loyalty to the institution above everything else. That's, right, I would right. not want to be called religious. Right, right. I mean, I, I would use the word for myself and and uh, that, I, that I'm faithful to God, faithful to Jesus as, as a Christian pastor. So religious... Um, I once, when I was at Yale Divinity School years and years ago, I was walking through the, I was trying to, 
uh, get smart by osmosis. So what I did was I went into the stacks where all the books were at the Divinity School, and I just sort of stood around and walked. I'd look at titles, and I thought, well, I've read that book now. You know, <laughs> not the best student, right? So anyway, so I'm walking through. I'm walking. Th- I'm, I'm going to get smart just by being in this part of the building, right? So so I'm walking through. I hear this woman weeping, right? And, you know, I, I turn the corner, and she's like crumbled on the floor. And so I go down and sit next to her. I go, are you okay? And she said, I'm not okay. She said, I'm struggling with being a Christian. And I said, you know, here we are in the divinity school, right? I'm thinking, this is my first opportunity to be a real pastor. (laughs) So I said, well, let's talk. So we end up talking for hours, right? Sitting there, and of course, people, you know, as you go through the stacks. But we're talking for hours, and it was it was the idea that cr- to be a Christian was a negative thing, right? And again, that gets back to what you're saying about religiosity and religion. And this was the rise of the moral majority um, that Jerry Falwell was leading and Pat Robertson. I mean, this, this was the rise at that point in time. And she was spot on. I had a teenager. You, you guys would love this. I had a teenager last year. She comes to confirmation the decision about being confirmed into the faith. And she says, well, Reverend Tim, she started out an atheist, so she, you know, so there's a growth curve here. So so she starts out, she comes and she says, Reverend Tim says, I'm not gonna get confirmed. And I said, okay, sweetheart, tell me why. And she said, well, I like you. I like everybody in the church. I like everybody in my class. She says, I just don't like organized religion. Back to your point. So, you know, I'm thinking to myself, neither do I. <laughs> so, you know, I'm with you on this. So, you know, I think I think it's when we, the language matters. And religious um, can take you down a narrow, dark alley um, into a destructive place. So, yeah. When you, uh, you think about Christianity has been around 2,000 years, I think this idea of this Christian nationalism has is, is probably been around, too, maybe not the way we define it, but certainly Christians have felt that they were superior uh, yeah. because of their, uh, I guess, religion. And you think about uh, the Crusades, the, the Spanish conquistadors, you know, were spreading Christianity around the globe. Um, so in a sense, it's been there, it seems to me. Why is it such a problem today? Well, I think with anything, um, let, let, let's go back. I mean, you know, um, I, I think that uh, depending, on, <laughs> depending on which side you're taking, you know, on this question, uh, the, uh, the, the, let, let's look at, at the year 324 A.D., right? Um, Constantine is under assault uh, by the cavalry in, in Rome, right? So his opposition is rising. He sees a vision of Christ in the clouds and just before the battle um, believes that he has been blessed in this battle, right? So he wins the battle. He captures the cavalry, takes them to the barns in Rome, locks the barns, lights it on fire, burns the horses and the soldiers that are in there to the ground, clears the area and builds his first cathedral. You know, you you talk about a moment in time 
that takes us back through, you know, the centuries. And, and I've been in that cathedral, you know, in Rome. And it's a haunting sort of thing is, wow, this is where it all sort of comes together. And so somewhere the message got lost of grace and forgiveness and, um, and healing. But what wasn't lost is the religion, Christianity, becomes the state religion. And now it belongs to the empire. So the empire can do anything at once by building cathedrals anywhere at once, by running crusades anywhere at once. So um, now you've got a new angle on, um, on pushing your point, literally, the point of a spear, uh, into uh, people. And, and, and it, it reaches its apex, of course, in the, in the battles between uh, Islam and Christianity through the ages. I, and I, I'm not answering your questions, so let's go back. I, say say again what you where. Well, you, I'm I mean, just you know, why are we talking about this today? And to me, it's because of the political aspect of it. Oh, and, absolutely. And the fears yeah. that I think at least we have that it's permeated now our politics, our the judges on the Supreme Court, the. Uh, you know, uh, the presidency. Right. That would right. be my thought. W- what's your thought? Why are we concerned about it? Why are you writing about it? Well, I'm concerned about it because it, it's, I think we give ourselves over to narratives. And once a narrative has embedded itself in, um, in the, um, in the dialogue, it's not even a dialogue anymore, in the monologue of a particular people, it becomes the truth, Right. And so this becomes, you know, so my, my concern is, and I see it happening in a lot of places, um, you are not, for, for me to be in the position of a Christian nationalist, I look at others and say, you're not a Christian. You're not even worthy of God's love because you are of, you know, ABC, other religions or no religion at all. Um, and you begin to set up a force, basically, an army of uh, good and evil, um, and and you begin to use that force against anyone in your path, and and it so it, it's a it's an ideology, it's a, it's a narrative that is set for destruction of others, uh, and so it's a very dangerous, very very dangerous narrative, uh, and by the way, it it tends to be um, led by those who maybe are religious, you know, as we were talking about, but not faithful necessarily. I mean, um, I, have, I have folks in uh, my experience who are both. They're, they're faithful and they're religious. So, so they work at following Jesus Christ and, and they have a discipline of practicing their faith, uh, which is beautiful to watch, right? Uh, but they do not use it as a weapon against someone else. And that's what we're seeing. Um, in other words, all of a sudden, you know, there, there's this, uh, this great um, South Park episode where, um, what's his face? Come on, the, the guy is the main character. <laughs> I'm not helping you here. He, he believes that, he, he looks at Christian music and he believes that he can make a bundle of money. So he, he just takes all these songs and puts Jesus in all the songs and starts raking in the money and becomes goes to number one, Cartman. 
Uh, he goes to number one on the charts in Christian music, you know, and, and everybody begins to say he's the most faithful Christian. He's like the most beautiful Christian we've ever seen. He's a horrible person, right? But he finds a way to manipulate it in a way that makes him rich. And so that's the other th- side of this is you manipulate a message so intensely and intently that you, you know, you you get something out of it, right? You become wealthy. That fits uh, yeah. that fits my I guess worldview of politics or maybe not worldview but certainly the United States which is the goal of politics is to stay in power. Right. Right. So if you think about uh, the means uh, or the end justifies the means, the end being stay in power, the means might be Christian nationalism. Oh yeah. Because Absolutely. there's a lot of people out there that would identify with the conflict that it creates. Right. And that turns into votes for people, right? Because this the cynic I am would be that if people rejected it outright, people like Michael Flynn and and whoever else we might put into that group, as far as political, they would abandon it for some other way to right. get and stay right. in power. Um, right. You know, I, I think about uh, a guy like our former president Donald Trump having um, this dinner with with Ye, formerly Kanye. Why would he do that? The only reason he does it to me is for political purposes, kind of this, this, I don't know, absurd view that there's people out there that will vote for him because of it. Because if he was thinking they wouldn't vote for him because of it, right, he might not do that. And, and I just wonder how much is, is Mike Flynn's really soul attached to this concept or whether mm. it's just politics for him to get to something that, that where he needs to go oh absolutely I mean I, I it's it's uh, again weaponizing the faith using it for power mm-hmm. um, and uh, using it for and by the way you, you can you can weaponize a faith in in all sorts of ways I mean we've seen it you know what one of the things that I learned from a rabbi years ago <laughs> he said when when you talk about faith, and other people's faith and compare yours to theirs. He said, I always love this. He said, always compare the best to the best, right? So compare the best of your faith to the best of another. But what we do is we compare the best of our faith to the worst of another. And we all have worst, right? Right? <laughs> we all have worst. So and and when you do that, it's it's a it's a power imbalance and it's meant to uh, tear down the other, and we do that in lots of ways. Back to your point, it it's it can be done with the veneer, with the language of religion, um, and it can be done with the language of other things, right? So, so whatever is the latest thing that's working, right? So, um, that's the danger of it. Um, and and one of the th- you know one of the things, just again speaking to Jesus, think about what he was up against. He was up against the Roman Empire. Speaking of the empire, speaking of power. Um, you know, there, there's a wonderful story I love to tell. I was um, in Israel, actually on a kibbutz, uh, many, many years ago, and the kibbutz overlooked the road that comes out of the hills of Nazareth, and it comes down into a valley in the Galilee Valley, and you can go one of two ways. It's There's a T in the road. You come out through the mountains, down from the hills, uh, and you go either left or right, right? doesn't even go straight. There's, it's just not a crossroad. It's a left or right. 
If you go to the left, having come down from the mountains, you go to the Mediterranean Sea. If you go to the right, you go to the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is, the, as you know, the largest freshwater uh, sea. And it's also a place at the time of Jesus that had 40 fishing communities that were being taxed and driven into poverty at tremendous rates. The unemployment rate in Jesus's time around the Sea of Galilee was 80%. People were starving to death. So Jesus, as the Son of God, comes down from that mountain and comes down to that road and can go left or he can go right. If he goes left, I'm thinking to myself, he could catch a boat anywhere in the Mediterranean. <laughs> you know, go on holiday. You know, he's, he's the son of God. Maybe he could just walk there. <laughs> so, you know, but, but he chooses to go to the right. He chooses to go inland. And he chooses to make his place with the poorest of the poor. And that in itself is a statement immediately and and I'm looking over the at the from the hillside as the sun is setting on this decision I, I've written a lot about this moment you have to make a choice right and he chose to stay with people he basically also chose in that decision to go to his death because he he knew the fire and the fury that he would draw from the empire and the religious leaders of his time for making that choice to stand with people. And that allows me to circle back to something you said a few minutes ago about a narrative. Right. As I think about faith journeys, if I were a New York ad agency, the nationalism message is a lot easier to sell than the message of Jesus in that when you sell this nationalism message, it's galvanizing, it's chest-thumping, you get to be the good guy at the expense of everybody else is bad. You get to promote power. You get to right. promote this notion of strength. Right. You know, trying to sell the message of taking care of the poor of the poorest, that's a tough sell. Very hard. The, the first message resonates right now with people. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, um, speaking of empire, and you know, you started out with talking about football. football. And, you know, I, I've been saying to people uh, over the last couple of days um, in the devastating loss that Ohio State experienced and just being <laughs> soul crushed in the second half, right? I said, now for the first time, the people in that stadium, leaving that stadium, experience what it must be like to be the other team Saturday by Saturday in the fall because the other team always leaves with their soul crushed, right? And, you know, that's where humility comes in. When, you know, that's, when we learn that, it's like, oh, this is what it feels like to crawl back to your car and drive to Indiana or, you know, drive back to Pennsylvania or Northwestern, uh, you know. So, so this is what it feels like. And, and I think that gets back to your, the soul crushing thing. I mean, it's much more fun uh, to leave having crushed a soul. <laughs> You know, it's just like in terms of football, right? And so nationalism has a great, you know, a great draw to it. I mean, it, there, there's no question um, that it has a great draw. And by the way, you know, the language of empire, the language of power uh, wrapped in the flag, which is wrapped around the cross, has been with us, again, back through the centuries, 
Um, you know, again, I mentioned Germany earlier, and one of the things that Hitler said to all of the pastors um, uh, in the Protestant churches in Germany is, if you do not read the letters that I send, sort of like the papal letters, you know, are expected to be read to parishioners in the Catholic Church at times. And I don't know what those times are. Jack, you could fill me in on when that's supposed to happen. But, but he sends these letters to the pastors and he says, if you do not read this in church, you will be taken prisoner and taken to a concentration camp and so will all of your family. So, you know, you can talk as much as you want about the freedom of the pulpit, but that's what nationalism in its worst extreme looks like. Um, and believe me, the trajectory of that is very possible in our own time. I'm very pleased to see that democracy stood up, you know, a couple weeks ago in November um, and said, we're not going to go down quietly in the night. You know, this, you're going to have to take this out of our fingers, out of our cold hands, right? So I think that was a very positive thing. And by the way, uh, led by a deeply faithful president who often is treated as though he's a pawn in the game of politics, but he's a, he is a deeply faithful and practicing person of faith, right? Probably the most that we've had since Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, and so it's fascinating to me how his own church and the bishops have turned on him in so many ways, when in fact they should be saying this is what it looks like to be a man of faith and a leader, right? Because he doesn't force it down anyone's throat. He gets on his knees, he prays to God, and, you know, he goes on. He, he knows, knows what it's like. You know, it's funny. I, when I was in college, I was a political science and religion major at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And the two departments were in Old Main. You know, every liberal arts college has its Old Main or something like that. And the tower of the political science department was across from the tower. So you, you have to go down two fl uh, flights of steps across and up. So this is the path I took down and up and down and up. Finally, one of the political science people said, why don't we just put a tightrope between the two towers for you? And I feel like I've been walking that tightrope ever since. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, yeah, okay, I can do this. So, um, you know, I think you have to walk a tightrope on these questions. And by the way, you know, I, I always remind people, Roger Williams, who was the one who first spoke about the separation of church and state, he, as he did, he was, as, as governor, as a Baptist pastor, but governor of Rhode Island, one of the things Williams was saying um, so many years ago was, it shouldn't be a wall that you can't see over. It's like a wall in a, in a New England field, you know? It's about four feet high, just so the cattle can't get out. But you can walk between the fields. You can cross over this wall of separation between church and state. He said, uh, you don't want to build it so you can't see over it and walk over it. You want to build it. And he says, the reason we need a wall of separation between church and state is to protect the state from the church. <laughs> I like that. And we lose that. And, yeah. and, you know, it's like, I'm afraid of what the church will do to the state. Right? <laughs> His Baptist pastor, governor. I mean, I think it's I, when this gets into a churchy language or a, a religiosity of thought and action, it gets dangerous. It gets very Because when God is on your side, man, 
watch out for everything that's before you. Listen to this. Uh, I picked this up off the uh, Christian Nationalism website. So. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. There's such a website? There is. <laughs> okay. It, it starts with, uh, let us pray, three simple but beautiful words. Then it goes on to say, though, this was more than just a call to honor our Creator. It was a declaration of war against the enemies of God who have entrenched themselves in the mountains of the media, entertainment, and government. After eight years of godlessness and ridicule, the Trump family has reasserted the importance of God in everyday American life. I mean, that's what you're saying. Religion taking over, you know, right, the, right. the government. Uh, it's uh, it, it's pairing this false religious belief with with the uh, with politics, and and it's been very powerful. I mean, you even talk about the recent elections. Right, right. How many people went down the wrong path and right. voted for these politicians that believe in this in this Christian? nationalism it, right. it's scary that there's that many people but you know on that as an aside i i tend to justify that with a lot of people will vote for somebody not based on their overall beliefs like christian nationalism although it, it scares those of us that really think about democracy and in our government but it's therefore you know, um, uh, less gun restrictions, and that's what's important to me. Or therefore, you know, a woman's right to choose or, uh, or you know, the, the right to life. So it's more of a personal choice than this overall conceptual thing that we're talking about, about nationalism. But the ranks are growing, and it, it, it's fearful to me. Let's have a little flashback, shall we? Let's go back 60 years when Kennedy was running for president. Yeah. And the and the concern was... I, I, I was just a yeah, baby then. Yeah, so. let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so let me tell you what but, happened. Yeah, but, but I was crawling around paying yeah. attention. Well, so I was ahead, too. Yeah. <laughs> but what was the big concern? I don't know. That he was going to be... That the Catholic doctrine would be guiding him in his role as president. Right. That was a big issue. And appropriately so, I think. Right. Now... We're at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's <laughs> it really is true. I mean, uh, it's funny, you know, when you were talking about uh, the Trump family, reading from that. Um, there's there's a moment that's probably lost to everybody except me, <laughs> maybe a few other pastors in the world. But these moments are important. Back when Trump was running uh, for president the first time, not the third time, but the first time. Um, well, second time, because he kind of ran in 12, but I, in 16 when he was running, um, when he lost but won, um, I, he, someone asked him, a reporter asked him early on in the campaign, what's your church? You know, what church do you belong to? You know, because he's talking about God and Jesus and, and saying things wrong like 2 Corinthians, things like that. He doesn't know it's 2 Corinthians, things like that. But, you know, they ask him what church he belongs to. And so he says the church of his childhood, which was um, um, the um, Marble Collegiate Church, Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. That's where he grew up. His family were members there. Uh, he was confirmed there in the faith. So the press, the reporter, you know, these hate, hated ones in what you were just reading, follow that up. So they call Marble Collegiate Church. And they say that the folks at Marble Collegiate say 
Donald Trump has not been a member here in over 30 years. So Trump's response, this is a really interesting moment, his response is, they're liars. And my response to that is, what, what would it serve a church to make that up, right? Of course they didn't make it up. They're telling the truth, right? And so, you know, who's the liar, right? And we all know who the liar is. But, but the point that I'm making is, he doesn't even, that's the only church he even had in his mind to say, right? It was his childhood church. He doesn't go to church. And, you know, he, I don't know that he reads the Bible. You know, I think one of the, it's interesting, the, the moment when they cleared the streets in Lafayette Square uh, in 2020, uh, you know, and, and had the protesters moved out with smoke and everything else, and he came marching across from the White House and held up the Bible in front of a church, upside down, I might point out, um, held up the Bible in front of the church that he'd never been in, but had been the Church of Presidents past, uh, St. John's Episcopal Church. Um, I think, you know, I, I had this conversation with a number of um, evangelical pastors after this. That was the breaking point for a lot of people in relation to him who are true evangelicals. And I want to be very clear, an evangelical Christian with a social conscience, with, with a conscience of justice, is truly one of God's saints on earth because they're, they're, they're embedded, they're uh, aware of Scripture in a way that most of us are not, um, and they live that Scripture, as most of us do not, but they live it in a way that you know makes a difference in this world. And, and I could name some of those folks, and there's some amazing people. But I, I had conversations with a number of evangelicals who preached to their own demise in their own churches the next Sunday against what he had done because he had turned that moment into a horrific um, display of Christian nationalism. That, that, I mean, that's a visual break point for a lot of people. Um, and they took it on the chin when they preached about it. Well, um, I've read about that yeah. and seen that pastors taking it on the chin for being outspoken in that regard. We're running out of time, but one thing I'd like to talk about, if we can for just a minute, is what I think is a subset of Christian nationalism, which is this notion of sort of the Lion King leader of America who will be a Christian. And I think this is aligned with the National Prayer Breakfast started by Doug Cooey, we used to see Paula White praying for the president. He was going to be this. She, I don't remember what words she used, but they were certainly a lot more. The words spoke more to power and destiny than, than true right, Christianity. Right. And that's really frightening. Right. This right. this Lion King who will save us and who is anointed by God, as right. Paula White said, Trump was anointed by God. That is exactly what she said, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it's a very, very, it's dangerous. I mean, it, it's it's it, it would I liken it to um, giving a child matches and saying, you know, um, 
with with gasoline and saying, you know, have some fun. We'll leave you alone for a couple hours. <laughs> so, you know, you don't do that, right? right? I mean, no one who's sane does that, right? But that's exactly what that is. It's it's playing with fire. Um, and by the way, there, there's a whole... We haven't even gotten into this, but we're not going to be on forever, right? <laughs> I could come back and talk some. There's a whole uh, another piece we're missing about idolatry. Idolatry is huge in the Bible, um, and this, all of this action, all of this uh, talk, all of these things that the Christian nationalists do are forms of idolatry. You turn the Bible into an idolatrous thing, as I like to say. Um, you know, the Bible speaks truth, but it's not always right. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, and so, you know, it, it's, it, it is a guide for life, but sometimes it's not even a guide through the next verse. I mean, it, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a flawed document in some ways. Now, that's considered heretical by some, but only if, if you've read the Bible, you would agree with me, <laughs> right? So those who, but what I'm, what I'm going to say is that all of that stuff that Paula White's talking about is idolatry, is setting a person up to be God. And by the way, Trump has affirmed that um, in his narcissistic, sociopathic way. He has affirmed that that is exactly who he is, right? So he's not only been anointed, but um, if you're using the Lion King, he is Scar in the Lion King and anointed as the wrong king, right? But but, and he will tear down everything around him, but he will take the anointing, even though it comes from hyenas. You know, the audacity of, uh, of some of these politicians to align themselves with, with, you know, what God envisions for our country. And I just think of DeSantis and his political ad where God created Ron DeSantis to do all of these wonderful things. Oh, I forgot about that. It That's right. over the top. But now that's kind of where we are, right? I mean, to, to think about a politician going to his political advisors or them going to him and saying, look, we can spend millions on this ad that basically is going to tell people that you're the anointed one now. Um, it's incredible to me just to know how a little bit of how that inside politics works. And the only reason they believe it is because they've decided it sells. Wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it will. I could tell you, based on the trajectory of how things go, it's going to get worse before oh, it gets gosh. better. So. <laughs> right. God help yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Reverend Tim, thank you. Um, you're a voice of reason um, in, in this uh, political um, uh, turmoil, and um, I certainly appreciate it. I think that. Uh, we understand that the faithful can have different political views, but that they can all work or we can all work in, in um, uh, you know, for humanity, uh, notwithstanding. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Yeah. One, one thing I just wanted to add, there's a danger to the faith also when we, when we silo uh, groups within Christianity. And there used to be a time I think in 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 the last century, even up to this turn of this century, where people could have disagreements and be in the same pews together and and work things out, and now it's uh, and this is a the church is affected by this um, cultural shift, 
and that is that we, we put ourselves in silos. So whoever listens to this podcast is in a silo, right? And so we don't, we don't communicate across. And the church, the, the, you know, the church as it is created to be can be one of those places that breaks down those barriers, actually. Maybe one of the last vestiges of that happening if we can encourage it to be a place where that can happen in a peaceful and civil way. So anyway. What a wonderful what a wonderful prayer and aspiration. I thank you too for being here. It was a wonderful conversation. Our thanks also to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French. If you like what you've heard today, tell a friend. We want this to be more than just us. We'd like it to be all of us. This is our last podcast until we hit January 2023. So until then, happy holidays. So long.